0: Section 17 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. The War with France. Part 2. In this way, acts of aggression on both sides plunged Europe into the most terrible of all modern wars, strongly against the wishes of all except the rulers of France. But in England, matters could never have reached the crisis which they did in 1793 had not the sentiments and opinions of the english people as well as of the english government undergone a great change at the beginning of 1791 englishmen had begun to retract somewhat of the delight in which they hailed the overthrow of the ancien regime in 1789 They had begun to reflect more upon the dangers which Burke had found lurking in the plausible phrases of the Declaration of Rights. They had begun to distrust a movement which seemed to be so much at the mercy of the Parisian mob. The complexion of the legislative assembly, the war fever, and the administrative incapacity which characterized the Girondists frightened the Tories into sympathy, though not yet into alliance, with the policy of armed intervention. They followed the movements of the Duke of Brunswick with anxiety, hoping that he would put an end to what threatened to become a nuisance to Europe. The Duke of Brunswick's progress, writes Lord Grenville, then foreign minister to his brother on September 20th, does not keep pace with the impatience of our wishes, and on the 11th of October, when the news of his retreat had arrived, he adds, We are all much disappointed with the results of the great expectations that had been formed from the Duke of Brunswick's campaign. Whatever be the true cause of his retreat, the effect is equally to be regretted. When the foreign minister of a ministry pledged to neutrality wrote thus, it may be taken for granted that the opinion of most of his party were not less strong in favour of the allies. At the same time, the growth of revolutionary sympathies in england and the ill-advised language in which they were expressed made tories begin to fear lest the revolutionary propaganda instituted by the republic might not after all disturb the peace of society at home the publication of Paine's rights of man the formation of the corresponding societies all over england consisting of men who openly avowed republican principles and delighted in using the catchwords of french politics increased suspicions far out of proportion to the intrinsic importance of these movements they were accepted in france as the voice of the english people and in england as representing the real opinions of the whig leaders in the caricatures of the time fox and sheridan almost universally appear in the guise of conspirators and republicans whether discovered by burke in the act of blowing up the constitution with french powder or joining with paine and priestly and riotous and seditious orgies in reality the whigs were by no means so confident about the revolution as they had been fox himself never faltered in his splendid if unreasoning faith in the ultimate goodness of the movement but he was sickened and horrified at the mob violence of the 20th of June, and the massacres of September 2nd. On the 3rd of September, 1792, he writes to his nephew, Lord Holland, I do not think near so ill of the business of the 10th of August, that is, the overthrow of the monarchy, as I did upon first hearing it. However, it is impossible not to look with disgust at the bloody means which have been taken even supposing the end to be good, and I cannot help fearing that we are not yet near the end of these trials and executions. A few days later, he writes, I had just made up my mind to the events of the 10th of August, when the horrid accounts of the second of this month arrived, and I really consider the horrors of that day and night as the most heartbreaking event that ever happened to those who, like me... Are fundamentally and unalterably attached to the true cause. There is not, in my opinion, a shadow of excuse for this horrid massacre, not even the possibility of extenuating it in the smallest degree. Thus deprived by the action of the French themselves of any possible sympathy for their internal administration, and alienated and disgusted more and more as time went on by the wickedness and cruelty of the terror. Fox turned his attention mainly to the external relations of France and strove with all his power to avert the threatening danger of a war with England. He took as his great principle the absolute wickedness of any attempt to force upon the people of France a government of which they disapproved. The invasion of the Allies in 1792 was, in his eyes, an act of pure tyranny. The Duke of Brunswick's proclamation he described as revolting to the feelings of mankind of his retreat after valmy he writes no public event not excepting saratoga and yorktown ever happened that gave me so much delight the defeats of great armies of invaders always gave me the greatest satisfaction from xerxes time downwards and what has happened in america and france will i hope make what cicero says of armed force be the opinion of all mankind in vidiosum detestabile imbilicium caducum in this spirit he applied all his energies to the prevention of war i shall think the ministry mad he writes if they suffer anything to draw them into a war with france though i really do think pitt in these businesses is a great bungler that england should go to war in alliance with the tyrants of seventeen ninety two was in his eyes not merely unjustifiable, but an abdication of her position as the chief of the free states of Europe. He agreed that the violation of the Scheldt by France formed a casus foederis, and that if Holland claimed our help and France refused redress, war could not be avoided. But he maintained that a direct and friendly negotiation with the French government and an evident separation of the interests of England from those of the Allies could easily prevent a rupture and afford the only chance of preserving the life of louis the sixteenth with these objects at the beginning of the session of seventeen ninety two ninety three he moved an amendment to the address and proposed that a minister should be sent to paris to negotiate the numbers in the division showed that the rupture in the whig party was now complete the events of 1792 had convinced the older section of the whigs that the principles of the revolution were incompatible with monarchical institutions and dangerous to the welfare of europe only fifty members followed fox into the lobby and they comprised entirely the left wing of the party the rest either remained away or voted against him once the staunchest of his supporters spoke strenuously on the ministerial side. Directly the measures of defence spoken of in the King's speech were introduced into the House, the breach was made still more evident. Fox throughout the session spoke with great vigour and more than ordinary earnestness, in eloquent condemnation of a war, as he phrased it, against opinion, but the whole of the older Whigs were now against him. The Duke of Portland, lord fitzwilliam sir gilbert Elliot, mr thomas grenville each one of whose names recalled the trusted ally of a great conflict in the past could no longer follow him into the regions of abstract principle but took their places with burke within the rampart of time-honoured institutions the old whig party of sixteen eighty eight had ceased to be one revolution had destroyed the child of the other it was inevitable that it should be so for the principles of the old whig party had worked themselves out and its aristocratic framework had fallen to pieces with the french revolution new men and new principles had come into being the youthful democracy recently born was still in the nursery an infant hercules terrible in its strength ungoverned in its passion attractive and repellent by turns a prodigy too ill-regulated as yet to be obeyed by men of sober judgment against it were arrayed the forces of society enlisted under the banner of existing institutions the throne the church the constitution formed the natural watchwords of defence and gathered round them all whether tory or whig who were opposed to democracy fox strictly speaking belonged to neither side in his love for the revolution he was a democrat in his love for the constitution he was almost a tory the principles of democracy were to him always much more of an ideal than they were a political program still as events worked themselves out he became enough of a democrat to form the rock on which the wave of english parties was irretrievably to split and with his diminished band of fifty followers to lay the foundation of modern radicalism in twelve long weary years of opposition fortunately for england the french would not wait for the slowly increasing pressure of public opinion to have its due effect on february first seventeen ninety three they declared war against england on their own account the establishment of the terror the execution of the queen the repudiation of christianity following quick upon the declaration of war removed any lingering doubts which may still have existed in the minds of law-abiding and god-fearing englishmen all that burke had prophesied was in the act of accomplishment the aristocracy the church the monarchy political and personal liberty and even christianity itself had been thrown overboard one after another in the mad frenzy of revolution jacobinism stood out clearly to the eyes of all who prized the blessings of civilization as the enemy and the scourge of the human race not less destructive and in its nature more immoral than the barbarism of attila or the religion of islam pitt therefore had the nation at his back when he took up the glove of battle thrown down by france in february 1793 war had been quite inevitable ever since france had determined to carry the principles of the revolution into other countries pitt and grenville if left to themselves would have put off the evil day as long as possible but their hands were forced by public opinion in england and republican enthusiasm in france there was no similarity to english minds between the action of the allies in seventeen ninety two and the action of england in seventeen ninety three the former was a war undertaken to compel france to accept a form of government which was distasteful to her the latter was a war undertaken to prevent france from imposing jacobin opinions and democratic government upon other nations the system of revolutionary proselytism adopted in the autumn of seventeen ninety two exactly reversed the whole condition of affairs it was to england what the declaration of pilnitz was to france and it was not until that system was carried into effect in savoy and was on the point of being carried into effect in belgium that pitt began unwillingly to arm this was the weak point of fox's position it was all very well eloquently to denounce the war as one waged against opinion it was a fair party charge to make that pitt had surrendered his principle of neutrality and had made common cause with despotism against freedom of opinion it was reasonable enough to maintain that there was no logical halting-place between complete disregard of jacobinism and the forcible restoration of the ancien regime but every educated man could see perfectly clearly that there was all the difference in the world between the right of a nation to adopt whatever form of government it pleased and profess whatever opinions it preferred without let or hindrance, and the right of a nation to try and establish that form of government and preach those doctrines in the territories of neighboring states. This was a distinction which Fox wholly ignored, but it is one which Englishmen at once comprehended, which Pitt acted upon, and which forms the justification of England in the War of 1793 the history of the years which elapsed between the outbreak of the war in seventeen ninety three and the whig secession in seventeen ninety seven form fox's best title to fame as an opposition leader he was in a hopeless minority he had lost the support of many of his closest and dearest friends hardly more than fifty or sixty members still owed his leadership and of those some like gray were in his eyes injudicious others like sheridan of no moral weight almost alone he had to bear the burden of directing a steady and vigorous opposition to a policy which from the bottom of his heart he believed to be both suicidal and wicked with no reward before him except the possible gratitude of after times there can be nothing more dispiriting to a politician than the obligation of spending session after session in hopeless warfare against organized stupidity that this was fox's position no one could dispute whatever opinions may be held as to the necessity and the justice of the war there is an universal agreement as to the folly and incapacity which signalized its conduct what can be said for a finance minister who continued to borrow year after year one million pounds at high interest to put it away in a sinking fund in order to pay itself off, who obtained loans by issuing bonds of one hundred pounds for fifty to sixty pounds, which were certain to rise in value when the strain of war was over, who in four years added eighty millions to the national debt. What can be said for a war minister who twice placed the english army under the imbecile leadership of the duke of york who wasted the resources of the country upon small expeditions over all parts of the world and who in seven years of warfare never discovered a capable general or won a great victory what can be said of a home minister who in abject terror of a few blatant and self-important democratic orators took away one after another most of the safeguards of personal liberty against these measures fox directed an unremitting attack he divided the house again and again on the conduct of the war and the subsidizing of the german powers he sought to enlist on his side the growing feeling of distrust which naturally attended continued failure in the field he made energetic appeals in favour of peace whenever opportunity offered he threw all his strength into the denunciation of the habeas corpus suspension act and the seditious meetings act and the rest of pitt's code of executive terror we have had warm and good debates in parliament he writes in seventeen ninety four in which if my partiality does not deceive me our advantage in speaking has been as great as that of the enemy in voting especially upon the suspension of the habeas corpus and on my motion for peace i believe the country is heartily tired of the war but men dare not show themselves i think of all the measures of the government this last nonsense about conspiracy is the most mischievous and at the same time the most foolish again in seventeen ninety five he says I think there is something more truly diabolical in the part we are acting now than in the conduct of any nation in history. Peace is the wish of the French, of Italy, Spain, Germany, and all the world, and Great Britain is alone the cause of preventing its accomplishment, and this not for any point of honor or even of interest, but lest there should be an example in the modern world of a great and powerful republic. Everybody says the country is nearly unanimous for peace, the ministers as warlike as ever. Again, a few weeks later, he writes of the Seditious Meetings Bill. There appears to me to be no choice at present but between an absolute surrender of the liberties of the people and a vigorous assertion attended, I admit with considerable hazard at a time like the present. My view of things is, I own, very gloomy, and I am convinced that in a very few years this government will become absolute, or that confusion will arise of a nature almost as much to be depreciated as despotism itself. That the ministers mean to bring on the first of these evils appears to me so clear that I cannot help considering any man who denies it as a fool or hypocrite, and I cannot disguise from myself that there are but too many who wish for the second. In this criticism, Fox does but scant justice to Pitt. The inroads upon personal liberty made by Pitt during the progress of the French Revolution arose from too great a dread of the influence of the democratic propaganda, not from a desire to found a despotism. They were, like the war itself, defensive, not aggressive in their character, and they passed away easily with the terror which gave them birth pitt's obstinate continuance of the war in spite of failure and in spite of desertion sprang also from the same belief but in this case its results were more disastrous england had gone to war to prevent europe being revolutionised by the sword but all danger of the success of democratic proselytism passed away with the fall of the jacobins in seventeen ninety four by that time the spirit which ruled france had quite altered The victories of the French armies had revived the old love for military glory, and before that the star of abstract democracy paled. Frenchmen were no longer mainly anxious to emancipate the world. They were much more anxious to win battles and to extend the frontiers of France. It was the ghost of Louis XIV which Europe had to deal with in 1795, not the red spectre of Jacobinism. The other nations of Europe perceived this, they had long ago given up the idea of forcing the Bourbons upon a reluctant nation. They would be quite content to retire from the position of champions of monarchical orthodoxy, and take up once more the old familiar task of rearranging the map of Europe, so that every one should have a bit of what he wanted, enough to stimulate the appetite, but not enough to satisfy the craving. Prussia made a separate peace in April 1795 spain followed her example in june the emperor was only prevented from doing the same by the bribes of pitt just at this moment in the interval between the fall of the jacobins and the rise of napoleon peace was possible on honourable and satisfactory terms fox saw this at once and redoubled his efforts pitt could not see it the red spectre still dazzled him to plod steadily on doggedly and determinedly undeterred by failure unelated by success along the path of resistance until france was crushed and jacobinism was killed seemed to him the plain duty which patriotism dictated and so the opportunity was lost jacobinism as a danger to europe had indeed committed suicide in the terror but france had a greater curse still in her womb Pitt insisted on the continuance of the war, and the war gave birth to Napoleon. Military despotism, brutal, selfish, and unscrupulous, soon ousted Jacobinism as the bugbear of Europe, and England, which had cheerfully, if blindly obeyed Pitt in refusing peace in 1795, had to fight on, almost single-handed, against the tyrant, until she received her reward, as the champion of the freedom of Europe in the triumph of 1815. End of section 17.